Good morning. A couple of years ago, I had an interview with a very well-educated man, and at the end of the interview, he stood up, he shook my hand, and he said, it was great meeting you. I really enjoyed our conversation, and I greatly appreciate your candor. I said, "Uh, yes, sir, anytime, thank you. But in the back of my mind, I was thinking, what in the world is candor? I, I had no idea what it was. So as soon as I got out of the interview, I go to the car, and I look up the definition. Um, because I needed to figure out what it was that he appreciated and what it was that I just agreed to provide at any given time. So as soon as I left, uh, I did that. And the definition is the quality of being open and honest in expression. Excuse me. Now I was immediately humbled by this man's remark. Um, and I'm grateful to a group of people group of brothers and sisters in Christ that have encouraged and developed this quality not only in myself but in many others that are listening today Um, and I hope that you can expect no less of me as today we discuss the intentions of our hearts let me get this open there we go Now, before we get into the scripture, I'll be reading out of the ESV today. I want to discuss and disclose to you a few things. Number one, the world wants you to follow your heart. We've all heard the phrase, um, you know, follow your heart. And how about, you know, the heart wants what the heart wants. Or my personal favorite is do whatever makes you happy. Now, all three of these phrases have a couple of things in common. Number one is their primary concern is that of appeasing the flesh. And number two, they are completely contrary to the word of God. And in our culture today, we are surrounded by this ideology so much that even our children are being influenced to this new new age lifestyle. So if you would permit me, I'd like to show you an example of this. Fruit Loops are so deliciously fruity, your colorful side will come alive. Hey, Toucan, give it a spin. Bring it. Whoa, just winging it here. Do whatever makes you happy. Whatever fruits you lose, part of this complete breakfast. Did you catch it? Well, uh, for those of you that may not have, let's, let's look at it one more time. Fruit Loops are so deliciously fruity, your colorful side will come alive. Hey, Chucan, give it a spin. Bring it. Whoa, just winging it here. <laughs> Do whatever makes you happy. Whatever fruits you lose, part of this complete breakfast. They slipped it in there pretty quick, didn't they? Do whatever makes you happy. Now, when this way of life is stripped down to its simplest form... You can see it for what it truly is. It is a life seeking after self, a life entirely focused on me. So simply a life of selfishness and our current climate encourages and tries to develop this way of thinking into even our children. You know, so many people today wonder why my generation or the generations that have come after me 
um, behave the way they do. It is because we are being taught things like this and without someone, particularly parents, to teach us in the way of the Lord rather than just sit us down in front of the television or shove an iPad in our hands just so that we don't bother them. You know, if we aren't being taught by those individuals the right way, then how can you expect anything different? Now, what exactly does our flesh desire? You know, if we say that it's unbiblical, let's see what the scriptures say over in Galatians chapter 5, verses 16 through 24. Again, I'm reading out of the ESV. It says, But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other, to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual impurity, uh, excuse me, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. Now, I mentioned this morning that this is an exhaustive list, but just to be sure, and there's a reason that that he touched on all of these things with the people in Galatia, which we won't get into today, but just to make sure that nothing's left out, he says, and things like these. And then it says, I warn you as I warned you before that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God, but the fruit of the spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, and against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Excuse me. So we've heard many pastors speak on being intentional. You know, that phrase or that word comes up quite a bit, intentionality. So we need to examine what those intentions are. Because the world is being intentional. Make no mistake. These are intentional and premeditated attacks on biblical Christianity. They are intentionally trying to get us, the church, to buy into this new way of life. And unless we can recognize it for what it is, which is a ploy of the enemy to deceive us, then we are going to succumb to accepting it as the truth. Now, there will be those that are going uh, going to hear this. They're going to think, well, that can't be right. You know, I've been told my entire life to follow my heart. What could possibly be wrong with that? You know, it's even in the sandlot. Follow your heart, kid, and you never go wrong. Well, that's unbiblical. So, what, you know, what makes you, Josh, what makes you say that that's not biblical or unbiblical? What's well, those individuals that do not accurately understand what the desires of our heart are. So that leads me into discussing the true nature of our heart. The problem with following your heart is that your nature, your very being desires evil things. It longs for worldly things, things like sexually immoral things, impurity, lust, greed, idolatry, and so on, just like that list said a minute ago. 
And if we were to live our whole lives chasing after the desires of our heart, we make ourselves God because we worship self, because our worship is focused on self. So every natural desire of your flesh, of your heart, every natural desire of your heart is selfish. And anyone that is not a born-again Christian, either intentionally or unintentionally, bases most of their decisions with selfish motives. Now, let me say that again. For those that are unsaved, whether it be intentionally or unintentionally, base most of their decisions on selfish motives. Now, not all. You know, I was t- I was typing this out or getting this uh, prepared, and I was thinking I put all, but that's not true. We know we know people that are not saved that have done things selflessly. We know people that have, um, you know, done things sacrificially for others. So it's not entirely true, but I would say the driving factor of most things in their life is a selfish motive of some kind. So a couple of worldly examples here. Think about it. A guy buys a girl flowers. He expects endearment in return, right? A millionaire gives to charity. He does that out of the goodness of his heart, right? No, no. Most of the time, they do it for acknowledgement or a tax write-off, right? Bill Gates gives more money away to charity than most other people in the world combine every year. But he doesn't do it because he's some selfless human being. Now, even true followers sometimes give into those same selfish desires. In fact, that is often when we find ourselves in trouble, is when we are seeking th- selfish things. For instance, have you ever thought that your time was more valuable than someone else's? Do we do things for our spouse out of obligation or expectation or for some selfish reward? Or do we do those things biblically, which is sacrificially? And I'm talking to myself here. So how do we know that our hearts are evil? Well, Genesis 6, 5. For those of you that don't know the context, be sure to look it up. Genesis 6, 5 says, The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Jeremiah 17, 9. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick or wicked in some translations. Who can understand it? See, the problem is that we convince ourselves that we are better than we truly are. And I'm speaking to Christians here. We convince ourselves that we're better, that our hearts are somehow better than than what they actually are, Christians and non-Christians. But if we follow and obey the teachings of Jesus Christ, the Bible tells us that his word will be like a mirror that will reveal to us who we truly are in the light of his righteousness. See, the problem is that we are expert deceivers. You know, one of the greatest deceivers of all time had to have been Judas Iscariot. In fact, he had mastered his craft, and he had done it so well that there are people today that believe that Judas was saved, that he was a born-again Christian, that, you know, he just made some bad decisions. Judas was not a Christian. Okay, let me clarify that today for anyone that's, that's got any doubt. <clears throat> Excuse me. 
he never was a Christian. Now, how do I know? Because over in John 6, Jesus actually says, one of you is a devil. So there's a pretty good clue, right? He never had a heart that sought after righteousness. His heart was consumed with selfish desires and ambition. There's a great evangelist that I love listening to that said anytime that he saw uh, a picture of Leonardo da Vinci's Last Supper, he would always deliberately look for Judas. He'd look for the guy with the big hook nose, and he's wringing his hands in the corner, and he's all sulky looking, you know. But that's totally unbiblical. There's nothing that tells us that that would be how he looked. And I would say, and this is my opinion here, that it's very possible that Judas could have been a pretty good-looking guy. You know, he 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 probably wasn't this shady-looking dude. And the reason I say that is because he was so trusted. He was actually so trusted that he was the treasurer of the disciples. You know, he was the one that they let be responsible for all of their money. And to them, he probably seemed like he cared more than most people, right? Judas actually looked after them individually. He paid for their food. He probably arranged for places to stay. He cared for the poor, and he was concerned for the poor, right? When it, it wouldn't be it wouldn't be strange for Judas to leave for a long period of time or to go out before the the group with Christ into the town that they were about to go into to make sure they had food or or lodging of some kind. So he cared for them, and he did care for the poor in the disciples' eyes to the extent of when a woman broke uh, an alabaster box of that fragrant oil we've talked about the past couple of weeks, this real expensive oil over the head of Jesus, he he said, why wasn't this sold and the money given to the poor, right? So to the disciples, he cared for the needy. And some of them were probably thinking, why didn't I think of that? Why didn't I suggest that? He has a heart for the poor. No, the Bible tells us that he was really a thief, only concerned for himself but he was trusted by the disciples it says when jesus sat down at the last supper he said one of you will betray me now what did the disciples say because i can tell you what they didn't say they didn't say you know yeah i know exactly what it's going to be it's going to be all hook nose over there it's going to be the the guy ringing that sulky looking character over there in the corner i bet it's him I bet it's the guy with the money yep he's going to do it it's all hook nose no what did they say matthew 26 verses 20 through 23 when it was evening he reclined at the table with the 12 and as they were eating he said truly i say to you one of you will betray me and they were very sorrowful and began to say to him one after another is it i lord and he answered he who has dipped his hand in the dish with me will betray me. Judas had them so convinced that they would question themselves before they questioned him. They said, is it me, Lord? Is it I? And Jesus said, it is he who dips the bread in the dish. And Judas goes, right? He dips the bread, takes a bite. And people still, still didn't know it was him. They were still surprised. Because in the other accounts of the Gospels, in the four Gospels, it says that they they, they thought he was going to, to give to the poor. They had no idea. They did not even suspect that Judas would betray him. But when he left, they believed that he was going to do something good. So my point is, Judas 
had mastered his craft. You know, at one time I had a whole series that I was going to teach on Peter, mainly because I can see myself in him. I'm loud. I make big statements. Uh, I'm a man of grand gestures. You know, I think before I speak, um, sometimes I'll say things, I'll stand on ceremony and say things that might not necessarily be true, but it sounds good and it puffs me up really. And I can be obnoxious, right? Sounds a lot like Peter. So I was like, yeah, I like him. But Peter had a heart for Jesus. So, so we all like Peter because, you know, he still loved Christ. And, and I was thinking, yeah, that's me. But the reason that I never taught that series is because the more I studied, the more I studied Peter, the more I realized how much less like Peter I am and how much more in common I have with Judas. Now, there was one difference between Peter and Judas. It's that Peter was saved and Judas wasn't. But I will find myself doing things and behaving in a similar sense. You know, I'll read my Bible. I sing loud. I post scripture. um, Even plaster my vehicles with the little Jesus fish. Right? But all the while, my intentions are not focused on righteousness, but they'll be focused on selfish things. I will see my selfishness, my uncleanness, chasing after worldly things. You know, I put on a good show to make people think better of me, to think I'm intelligent, to think I'm sanctified. And we are so good at fooling people that we even convince ourselves of this very same falsehood. We have mastered our craft. And like Judas, we fooled everyone except God. Which leads me to this point, is that no amount of deception can deceive God himself. 1 Samuel 16, 7. This is when God had chosen David as king, to be king, to be Saul's um, successor. It says, But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. Jeremiah 17.10, I, the Lord, search the heart and test the mind to, to give every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his deeds. Proverbs 21.2, every way of a man is right in his own eyes, but the Lord weighs the heart. And there's numerous other passages of scripture. I mean, you can just Google um, the Lord sees the heart, right? Tons of them. Well, my point here is the jig is up. We might think we have deceived everyone, but no amount of flair or cunning can hide any iniquity that you or I have stored in our hearts. Because God sees our heart for what it really is, and it will be your heart that condemns you. For those individuals that have not received a new heart, a heart of flesh, a heart that desires righteousness, so many of those people will plead to Jesus Christ on the day of judgment. And the scriptures tell us, they'll say, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name? Uh, Have we not cast out demons in your name and done many wonders in your name? And, you know, maybe more commonly, what we will hear is, Lord, didn't you hear how loud I was singing? Didn't you see me teaching Sunday school? Didn't you see me raising my hands during worship? Didn't you see me witnessing to my coworker? Or preaching in the pulpit. Lord, didn't you see the Jesus fish that I put on my car? I'm one of yours. 
but then he will look not as man sees, but as the pure, righteous, and holy God. And he will look straight at our hearts. And if he does not see righteousness, if he doesn't see a reflection of himself, then he will only see what we have to offer. Which the scriptures tell us are as filthy rags. What we think is good is not. What we have to offer is evil and vile and corrupt. And on that day, he will say the saddest and most terrifying words anyone could ever hear to those people who are unsaved. He will say, I never knew you. Depart from me, you worker of iniquity. But there is hope, right? Jesus will give us a new heart. For those of us that are saved, he promises that. In Ezekiel 36, 26, it says, And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. He's promised those that he will save a new, clean heart that desires righteousness. And before he will do that, you must rightly understand that God is perfectly just, that God is perfectly holy, and that we are who are sinners are not. We are full of wickedness. We are haters of good. We are enemies of God, and it is because God is just that he cannot let sin go unpunished. You know, you'll, you'll talk to people, individuals, that think that they're good people. And then when you ask them if, if they're going to go to heaven, they'll say yes. Most of the people around here, anyways, where I live, northern Alabama, they'll tell you, yes, I'm, I'm going to go to heaven. Why? Because I'm a pretty good person. It's because God is just and because God is good that he cannot allow sin to go unpunished. You see, it is then that we realize that we have nothing good to offer and that we are altogether wicked. And so we must throw ourselves at the mercy of God. This is where our true understanding of the gospel comes in. We must first understand who God is, really. We must rightly understand. And then we must rightly understand who we are. And when we realize how holy God is and how unholy we are, and that we have nothing to offer. The only thing that we can do is throw ourselves at his mercy and plead with him, God, have mercy on me. But it is also because God is full of mercy that he has demonstrated his love and mercy through the work of his son. Right? Jesus Christ came to live the perfect life that we could not so that he could justify and satisfy the debt that we couldn't pay. He came to bear our sins so that we could be reconciled back to him for those who repent and trust in Christ alone, right? For those people, God promises to give them a new heart, one that seeks righteousness, that wants to please God over pleasing self, a heart that wants to show others the same love and mercy that he has shown us in him in the individual that God starts a good work, he promises that he will finish it. And by doing so, 
by receiving this gift, you will humble yourself and you will see these people who are truly repentant and truly transformed by their submission to his authority. The gospel is pretty simple. You have to understand who God is. You have to understand who you are. You have to understand who Jesus Christ is and what he's done for you. And then you must repent and believe. Now, I'm not saying that for those, especially you Christians, I'm not, I'm not saying that, that you won't ever fall into sin. I, don't misunderstand me. But there is a tremendous difference between someone who is truly transformed and someone who is not. See, someone whom God has truly saved might fall into sin. But those that are not saved will dive in headfirst. Scriptures say their hearts make provisions for the flesh. So if you know or even think that what you are about to do is sinful, but you choose to do it anyway, you are making provisions for the flesh. And we can get into that a whole other time. But he tells us that if we're making provisions for the flesh, that we are to examine ourselves daily to make sure we're in the faith. And then we need to ask which faith do we say that we are that we hold to, right? Because some people hold to a faith that's that's not true. They they have misplaced faith. Well, this is what I'm charging everyone with today, myself included. If you were to die today in your current state and God sees your heart, what would he see? Would he see a reflection of himself? Would he see that our sins have been covered by the blood of his son, the only worthy sacrifice that can that can satisfy that debt? Or would he see the iniquity that you still allow to dwell there? That sin that you just love too much to let go. You know, what are your intentions for agreeing with the scriptures? This is a hard question for some, right? Because some people say they believe the Bible is true, but it's because there's a lot tied to that. Social status, to be right. Now, some people agree with the scriptures just to be right or to prove a point or to fit into a particular group. But then they're unwilling to say, maybe I don't actually believe this because they know if they do, they might now be ousted from this group they've been a part of for so long. Or do you agree with the scriptures and come to a place of acceptance and repentance to worship the one true God? Because when we come to that true place of worship, we can praise him for making us a new creation from the inside out. You know, early in Solomon's life, he did this very thing. This, this um, follow your heart attitude is not some new ideology. I want to make sure that we are clear of that, um, you know, that I make that clear, is that the world has been pushing this for a very long time. Because Solomon tells us that he did this very thing. Over in Ecclesiastes 1.14, it says, I have seen everything that is done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity and a striving after the wind. What, what, what does that mean? Well, if you read on in Ecclesiastes, he tells you about some of those things that he's done. He's done all things. He's had all things. He's, he's 
everything you could think of that you could ever want. He's had everything you could have ever wanted to do. He's done, and he's done it a thousand times over. And he says it's all vanity. And this is Ecclesiastes 1, but listen to the attitude change over in Ecclesiastes 12. Because by the end of his life, he says, Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. A man who followed his heart, that did what, you know, chased after the desires of his flesh, says it's all vanity. It's all vanity when you understand that fearing God and keeping his commandments is everything and the only thing. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day that you've given us. Father, be with us this week. Help us to examine our hearts and the intents of it. Help us to examine our hearts to to, to really understand what's there and what shouldn't be. What are we clinging to that is in direct conflict with your word? Father, be with our families. We ask that, that you would guide us this week, that you would encourage those that need encouragement, that you would give strength to those that need strength, healing to those that need healing, and rebuke to those that need rebuke. Father, if my heart is is wicked and clinging on to things that it shouldn't, break me if that's what it takes, painfully, to where I'm only seeking after you and your face and your glory and your righteousness. We praise you and we thank you and we glory in the name of your son, Jesus Christ. Amen.